Oh, I'm sure you can tell by the title of the sermon this morning, we are going to devote at least one more Sunday to our study of the Sabbath. And so, based on your interest, um, here we are. And you're hungry, you're thinking, you're curious, and you want to know. And I want you to know. So I'm going to do my best this morning to equip you with a robust, historical, redemptive, eschatological, epoch-abrogating, altering, eliminating, and transformative of the Jewish Sabbath now to understand the Sabbath and its relevance to us in the New Covenant. Are you ready? Well, you need to know this morning that there is no positive command to gather Sunday morning. You will find nowhere in the New Testament with a specific command for us to gather Sunday morning. Why do we gather Sunday morning? Have you ever asked yourself that question? And um, additionally... Should we observe the seventh-day Sabbath? What is Sunday? Why are we here? What should we be doing? What's the order of worship? What's the order of the service? How long should it be? Well, we're going to answer all these questions, plus some, in our time this morning. We're also going to go over any prohibitions on the Lord's Day. And also commands. So in terms of a summary from last week, we saw that God rested on the seventh day. He set it apart. And he what? He sanctified it. There are no commands to Adam and Eve to obey or to observe the Sabbath specifically in the book of Genesis. Although Jesus, in Mark chapter 2, verses 26 through 27, alludes to the Sabbath as being a creational account observance. The Sabbath was a covenant. The Sabbath was a sign to who? To the nation of Israel. And additionally, prior to the giving of the Sabbath, through the covenant at Mount Sinai, God specifically noted that he did not give that covenant to any of their four fathers. And as we reviewed last week, the Mosaic legislation on the seventh day, Sabbath, it prohibits labor on the Sabbath. We're talking about Saturday. Friday, 6 p.m. through Saturday, 6 p.m. No labor, no work. Not only that, if you were an employer, your employees, no working for them. If you had an animal, guess what? Though the animal couldn't talk, he'd be very thankful for the Sabbath. No laboring for the animal. There's no employment. There's no traveling on the Sabbath. There's no cooking on the Sabbath. There's no buying. There's no selling on the Sabbath. There's no commerce on the Sabbath. All of those are prohibited. And so when God rested in Genesis chapter 2, verses 2 through 3, it was proleptic. And that's a word I've used 
For the last several weeks, proleptic just means that within this rest, it's going to bloom to a greater expression. Why? Because through revelation comes redemption, and through redemption comes revelation. So, let's turn to Matthew chapter 12, please. Matthew chapter 12. And just as a heads up, uh, this is a parallel account, actually, to what we looked at last week in Luke chapter 6. So I want to read Matthew chapter 12, verses 1 through 8, and I want you to listen for any differences or discrepancies from what we saw last week. And I know you'll see it. Matthew chapter 12, verse 1. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and eat. But the Pharisees saw it. They said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? And those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. Or have you not read in the law how the Sabbath priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would have not condemned the guiltless, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. You see that? So Jesus, as Lord of the Sabbath, is the incarnate Yahweh. He was the one who instituted it. So he not only clarifies it, but he alludes to a future progression of it, a future growth, a future bloom of the Sabbath. There's going to be new characteristics. Why? Because Jesus is what? Lord of the Sabbath. You know what's real exciting too? I know you saw it. Look at verse 6. I tell you something. Something is something greater than the temple is here. Whoa. Something greater than the temple. What's that about? Jesus, I know you see it. Jesus groups the bread the temple, and the Sabbath all together. Isn't that interesting? Why? Because Jesus is demonstrating his lordship. Jesus never violated the Sabbath. He never desecrated the temple in any way. Why? Because he came under the what? The law. Jesus commented positively on sacrificial worship, but simultaneously in our text, he, he predicts that the temple is doomed. Do you see that? The temple is going to change. The temple is on the verge of collapsing. Jesus obeyed the law of God in its strict sense, in its complete sense, but he's also going to bring out the full expression of it. And he's going to bring both the Sabbath and the temple to the full expression. Did you know that Jesus abrogated and he destroyed the temple and the priests in one sense 
even though they remain? Did you know that? The temple yields to Christ, and so does the Sabbath. Now you're wondering how. This is how. Jesus was God tabernacling what? Among us. But we are also the temple of the what? Of the Lord, aren't we? We are the temple of the Lord. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God, 1 Corinthians 6.19? Did you know that according to 1 Peter chapter 2, that we are a kingdom of what? Priests. Isn't that fascinating? Both Paul and Peter are saying that in Christ, our body is the temple, not the temple out there. Our body is the temple. But not only that, we are a kingdom of priests, though those priests are still sacrificing in the temple. You see what he's doing? And so, through his suffering and through his glory, the temple will yield to Christ and the Sabbath will yield to Christ as it fits within a redemptive historical paradigm. With this new covenant, there is a new temple and a new Sabbath, a different kind of Sabbath. It has elements, though, of both. And so while Jesus authoritatively modified, he intensified, he repealed, he invested deeper meaning of various Old Testament laws, there is no example where he contravened or broke the law. Let's have some fun. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 5, please. Deuteronomy chapter 5. I'm going to ask a rhetorical question, and you think to yourself, yes or no? Or if it's ever. We're going to look at the Ten Commandments very briefly, and I want you, I want you to ask yourself this question. Is it ever morally justified to break this commandment that's revealed in Scripture? Let's have fun. Verse 7, it's the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. When is it morally justified to have other gods before the Lord? Never. It's an easy one, right? All right. Verse 8. This is the second commandment. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that's in heaven above, etc. When is it morally justified to worship idols? Never. Look at the third commandment in verse 11. You shall not take the name of the Lord, your God, in vain. Well, when is it morally justified to take the Lord's name in vain? Never. We're going to skip the Sabbath. We'll come back to that in a moment. Look at verse 16. Honor your father and your mother. When is it morally justified to dishonor your mother and father? Never. And there is a distinction between honor and obedience. It is never okay. It is never morally justified to dishonor your mother and father. How about the seventh, the sixth commandment? Verse 17, you shall not murder. When is it ever morally justified to murder? Never. 
verse 18, seventh commandment. When is it okay? When is it morally justified to commit adultery? Never. When is it morally justified? This is the eighth commandment in verse 19 for you to steal. Never. When is it morally justified for you to bear false witness against your neighbor? Never. And then the tenth commandment, verse 21. When is it morally justified for you to covet? The answer is never. Let's look at the Sabbath. Verse 12, fourth commandment. Observe the Sabbath day, keep it holy. When is it morally justified or when is it good to break the Sabbath? Well, when you're hungry. You saw that last week and we just read. It's morally justified to break the Sabbath when you're hungry. Or how about if your animals fall into a pit? So Luke chapter 12. Sorry, Luke chapter 14. It's morally justified to break the Sabbath in acts of kindness and compassion. It's morally justified to abrogate the Sabbath. Why? Because the priests work and profane the Sabbath, don't they? We just looked at that. Additionally, the changing of the temple guards occurred on the Sabbath. The priests, priests have to heat up the oven and bake showbread, don't they? They're working in the kitchen. Priests are offering sacrifices on the Sabbath. The opening of the east gate occurred on the Sabbath. Circumcision. In John chapter 7, Jesus notes that if the eighth day of a baby boy, after his birth, the eighth day falls on the Sabbath, guess what's happening to the boy? He's what? He's being circumcised. Do you see that? God became weary of Israel's hypocrisy in the observation of the Sabbath and of the ceremonies, yet God never says that he's weary of Israel's hypocrisy obeying any of the Ten Commandments. Or here's another question. When is it morally justified to break the other nine? Never. But we see exceptions with the Sabbath. The Sabbath, as a seventh day specifically, is a positive law that was given to the nation of Israel for their distinction as a nation until a full expression of God's rest entered and came about in and through the incarnation. And even if Adam did observe the Sabbath, on the seventh day, it's a creational ordinance. And you know what? Not all creational ordinances are binding in the new covenant, such as marriage. So the Sabbath was abrogated, was set aside when it came into conflict with God's moral law or a, or a law that superseded it. But there's no other commandment in the Ten Commandments other than the Sabbath that's abrogated, set aside, or altered under any given circumstance in Scripture with the exception of the Sabbath. So the moral law is based on the nature of God and is eternal, transcending time and covenants, but the Sabbath is temporal, creational, based on the seventh day of creation. And the Sabbath, as the seventh day, is a positive law that has been abrogated, changed, and altered. Point number two, the precedence and the priority of Sunday gathering. So the question is this, why do we gather as a church on Sunday? I made the statement, and you should have seen some of your jaws drop when I told you that there is no command 
to gather on Sunday. There's no command. But why do we? For our time this morning, I can't demonstrate every single text, but I have given you three reasons why we gather on the Lord's Day. First reason is this. Jesus rose on the first day of the week, didn't he? Christians gather on the first day, on Sunday, to commemorate the historical, redemptive, eschatological epoch procured through the incarnation, death, resurrection, and ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. We meet Sunday strictly because it's theologically rooted in the redemption procured by Christ. Here's a question for you. How many times are the days of the week mentioned in the New Testament? Specific days. The third day is mentioned, and so is the first day of the week. No other day other than the first day, Sabbath, is mentioned as many times as the first day. I think the authors want us to pay attention to the first day. Second reason is because of Pentecost. Pentecost was the outpouring of the Holy Spirit which occurred on Sunday or the first day. Both the resurrection and Pentecost occurred, what? On Sunday, on the first day. So the resurrection represents newness of life, a new era that fits within the redemptive historical paradigm. And Pentecost, 50 days later, after the resurrection, that's when the Holy Spirit was poured out in fulfillment of the prophet Joel. What's the point? Post-resurrection and pre-ascension appearances tells us that something is very special about the first day. Something is very special about Sunday. So the resurrection, it is a pivotal, epoch-changing, redemptive, historical, and theological basis for the gathering of the first day of the week. It is the beginning of the new creation. Not the old creation, the new creation. And the third reason is because the early church gathered on Sunday and also initially on the Sabbath as well. Now, as I mentioned, there's no prescriptive commands to meet on the first day. The New Testament believers met on the first day. You don't tell your children to clean up their toys. Wait a second now, cleaning up the toys is a really bad example because my children don't clean up their toys. You, you, don't, you don't tell someone to observe a command if they already do it. The reason why there is no command in the New Testament for the early church to gather on Sunday is simply because that's what they did. Turn to Acts chapter 1. I want to show you something absolutely fascinating. Acts chapter 1. I want to read verses 1 through 3. Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. In the first book, O Theophilus, I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom 
of God. You see that? Look at verse 2 again. Until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands. Through, do you see that? So you've got commands to the Holy Spirit, and you also have, at the end of verse 3, speaking about the kingdom of God. What was that? What did Jesus teach the apostles and the disciples concerning the kingdom of God? Paul, you remember Paul, may have received a similar direct revelation from the Lord Jesus Christ concerning Sunday. As I mentioned already, and I'll show you in a minute, the early church did gather Jewish Christians and Gentile proselytes. They gathered in the Sabbath, on the Sabbath in the synagogue. But I want to ask a big question here. Where did the synagogue even come from? Have you ever wondered that? Where did the synagogue come from? If you look back at Exodus chapter 16 and you read Leviticus 23, there is a specific command to the nation of Israel not to leave their home. The Sabbath did not initially require people to assemble and gather together. Did you know that? That is, Friday night through Saturday night, they were not to leave their homes. This is in Leviticus 23.3 and Exodus 16.29. And so they didn't meet together. Yes, perhaps they, 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 they'd go to the, the temple, they'd offer sacrifices, but there was no local gathering like this. So, where did the synagogue even come from? Well, the synagogue came about as a result of the Babylonian and the Assyrian captivity. As the Jews were carried away to Assyria in 722 and Babylon in 786, they wanted to, to preserve and hold on to their distinct Jewishness. And so what did they do? They began to meet together. And then as they came back from the captivity, wherever they settled, they established local synagogues in different towns and cities. But prior to the Babylonian captivity, they, there's no evidence that they gathered together, at least in terms of large numbers like this. So the reason why you see them entering the synagogue, Jesus entering the synagogue, that was not the case 600 years prior to that. It's something that is new. Synagogues existed as schools of instruction and to preserve a Jewishness of the nation, and they gathered on the Sabbath. Question, did the early church, Jewish Christians, and proselyte Gentiles gather in the synagogue and observe the Sabbath? The answer is yes. They did at least initially, and I want to show you. Turn to Acts chapter 13, please, now that we're in Acts. Acts 13. I want us to look at verse 5. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogue of the Jews. Interesting, isn't it? Calls it the synagogue of the Jews. And this would have been 
should have been for the Jews. I want you to look at um, verse 14, please. But when they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia, and on the Sabbath day they went into the synagogue and sat down, this is Paul and his companions. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioned with his hand, and you can read what he said. Look at verse 43 of chapter 13. And after meeting... After the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. Look at chapter 14, verse 1. Now at Iconium, they entered into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. Look at chapter 15, verse 21. For from the ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogue. Look at chapter 17, verse 1. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis, and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures and explaining the purpose of it. Look at verse 10. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they arrived, they went into the Jewish Synagogue, look at chapter 17, verse 17. So he reasoned in the what? In the synagogue. A couple more. Chapter 18, verse 4. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. I hope you see that Paul and his associates observed the Sabbath and went into the synagogue. What's he doing in the synagogue? We'll get to that in a moment. Turn to Acts chapter 20. I want to read verses 7 and following. On the first day of the week, see that? On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. Paul's, Paul's speaking for like six hours, friends. You guys have it good here this morning, right? Maybe not as long because they were breaking bread, but... Verse 8, There were many lamps in the upper room where they were gathered, and a young man named Eutychus sitting at the window sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer and being overcome by sleep. He fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down and bent over to him, taken by the arms, and said, Don't be alarmed, for his life is in him. When Paul had gotten up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak, and so departed. And they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. So do you notice that they're meeting on what? 
on the first day. Do you see that? Verse 7, on the first day of the week. So, for a Jew, the Sabbath begins, seventh day begins, Friday, 6 p.m. through Saturday, 6 p.m. So it means that the early church, they met what we would call Saturday night after 6 p.m. And they also met as well Sunday night. Why? Because it was a largely agrarian culture. They couldn't afford to be away from the cows and the chickens and the wheat. And so Jewish tradition continued like this until this eschatological newness emerged. And you may, you may be asking a couple questions. Why didn't Jesus abolish the Sabbath during his earthly ministry? He came under the what? Under the law, didn't he? He came under the law. He observed the Sabbath. He's not putting the horse before the, the cart before the horse. And additionally, the weight of the Jews was circumcision and the Sabbath. Question, why didn't the apostles just proclaim that the Sabbath day was abrogated, the seventh day? Why not? Because they're trying to win the Jews to Christ. And if you mention anything about the Sabbath, anything about um, circumcision, they'll write you off. They'll stone you. The Sabbath and circumcision were like the golden calf, minus the idolatry part. The um, circumcision and the Sabbath for a Jew, it's the meat and potatoes. It's the stars and stripes. It's the bald eagle. It was a symbol. And they would have never received the gospel if the immediate message was the abolition and the abrogation of the seventh-day Sabbath. They would have not received them. So the apostles entered the synagogue to evangelize the Jews by unveiling the details of the new covenant. Let's try a different way. Circumcision is a sign, and so is the Sabbath. Circumcision points to the old creation. Circumcision of the heart points to what? The new creation. The seventh-day Sabbath points to the Old creation and the Lord's day points to what? The new day of creation. So over time, Jewish cultic life, circumcision and the Sabbath faded as the church willingly embraced the new redemptive and eschatological unveiling in Christ. Remember Paul became all things to all people? That's fine. He'll go to the Sabbath. But he's going to the Sabbath to win the unbelieving Jews, many of them unbelieving Jews. And so by the end of the first century, turn to Revelation chapter 1 real quick. Revelation chapter 1, verse 10. Revelation chapter 1, verse 10. 
I was in the spirit on the what? Lord's day. Not the day of the Lord, but the Lord's day. You see that? It's possessive. It's God's day. Not man's day. God's day. The Lord's day. Now, who is he writing to? Look at verse 4. John to the seven churches that are in what? Asia. Who is he writing to? He's writing to who? Believers. To churches. And he's saying, hey, I was caught up in the Spirit on the Lord's day. And guess what? They would have already known what the Lord's day was. It's the first day. So what you have is, you have by the conclusion of the first century, you have common language where the Lord's day is, is what? The first day. It is resurrection day. There's no need for a command to gather. Why? Because they already gathered. There's no command because they were already doing it. We don't gather on Sunday or observe the Jewish Sabbath because of the rest in Genesis 2-3. It's come to fulfillment in Christ. The proleptic rest has bloomed and the flower is giving its fragrance. It is Christ. The resurrection marks a new day and a new creation, does it not? Those in Christ are new creatures The Sabbath points back to rest in the first creation and the gathering on the Lord's day points to the new day, the new creation, the resurrection. Try a different way. The first Adam failed to enter rest. Israel failed to enter rest. But the second Adam, the second Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ, as we read this morning, In Hebrews 3 through 4, he entered the rest. He entered the rest. And he offers rest to anyone here. Sunday, the Lord's Day, is the Christian Sabbath, points to a new creation and a new people of God. So, point number three, the procedure for Sunday morning gathering. So, you have all kinds of people doing all kinds of different things Sunday morning, don't you? Uh, For various reasons, right? So how do we make sense of it? Crossway does one thing, these people do another thing, these people do another thing. Well, how do we make sense of it? What exactly are we supposed to do Sunday morning? Well, first thing, there is no explicit set meeting time, whether it's morning, afternoon, or the evening. There's no set meeting time in Scripture. The early church gathered, as I already mentioned, Saturday evening, which started the first day. And according to the Jewish calendar, the first day started Saturday night after 6 p.m. And so they initially met. They didn't meet in the morning. Why? I already told you. Cows needed to be milked. The farm needed to be plowed. The blacksmith needed to fire up his, uh, his forge. The list can go on and on. But regardless, they gathered on the Lord's day. Isn't that interesting? We gather at 9.10. You know why we gather at 9.10? Turn to Proverbs chapter... No, I'm, I'm just kidding. <laughs> we gather at 9.10 because that's just when we gather. Some gather at 8, 
some 10, some noon, some have Sunday school before, some after. And the real special ones have ABF. You can say amen to that. Some have Sunday school, meet, and then they have Sunday evening. There's no set precedence in Scripture. Flexibility. How about in terms of length of time? Well, there's no explicit set amount of time. We just saw Acts chapter 20, verse 7 and following. Spent at least six hours together. Some people gather for an hour and a half. Some gather for actually more than 12 hours. Prior to the Lord calling me to Crossway Church, um, I served actually as a teacher at a Ukrainian church. They needed a teacher. They were trying to implement English. Um, and so every other, Saturday, every other Wednesday evening, I'd go to their prayer gathering and I'd teach. And occasionally, occasionally, I'd be invited to preach there Sunday morning. Service started maybe 8 or 9 o'clock. And um, the order of worship was much different than Crossway. There'd be songs. First preacher preaches an hour. Next preacher preaches an hour. Third preacher preaches an hour. And the kids are like this. And you know what? Some more songs. And maybe another one gets up. By this time, it's like 1 p.m. And you know what happens? They say, hey, you guys want to come over to our house? We're having dinner. Great, what are you having? We're having salmon. I'm, I'm all for it. So go over. Got this huge, I mean, it's this, it's this buffet. But it's what they do every Sunday. They've got meatballs and chicken and salmon. I mean, there's this huge table and, and I'm there all day. But they're doing this every Sunday. I'm not getting home till 5 or 6 p.m. But that's what they do on the Lord's Day. That's their culture. For many of us, it can barely last an hour, hour and a half. There's no explicit set amount of time for the Lord's Day gathering. How about this? Is there an explicit order of service? Well, the Old Testament scriptures initially, they were read through a Christological lens. And the apostolic tradition was taught until the copies of the New Testament books were written, they were copied, and they were delegated and given out until they had copies of the New Testament. You'll find no order of service in terms of elements. So when you look at your bulletin, you see the order. Perhaps you've gone somewhere else. But you know what? We do know, we do know, that the preaching and the singing and the reading of the Word of God was essential to the first century church gathering. Now, do you know why God did not give a specific set order of worship? You know why? This is why. Because it will descend into a dead spiritual orthodox like Catholic Mass. Dead. Liturgy, read, and the Spirit of God is absent. Or perhaps, like dead Orthodox, many Lutherans and Methodists, dead. Those of you who have been there, everything's laid out. Congregation mumbles, jumbles, there's no preaching. 
People don't leave changed. It's rigid, dead, orthodox. There's no life. God knows and God knew that the gathering of his body regarding different cultures and different places and different locations would take on different flavors. And so he's not going to pigeonhole man down, but allow for flexibility regarding the time and the culture. So what you have is you have the preaching of the word of God, you have corporate singing, and you have reading. Now there are some congregations that have a preacher who preaches for 20 minutes, sometimes more. And um, in many of those cases, the preacher should learn from a clam. A clam knows when to shut its mouth. But the more I compare these preachers to a clam, I'd be slandering the clam. So there's a reason. There's a reason why people leave unchanged. In some places, you, need, you don't need more preaching, you need less. Or you need more of a certain kind. Regarding the music, there's psalms, there's hymns, there's spiritual songs. But remember, friend, even the hymns of old, they were contemporary at one point as well. Bottom line, order was required, and man-made manipulation was prohibited as well. I want to present to you four different categories that everybody here falls into. Whether you are a regular attender, whether you're a member, whether you're a visitor, or whether you're someone who's just dipping their toes in the water of Crossway. First, there are some people who adopt some Jewish Seventh-day Sabbath principles, but not all of them. And what they do is they demonstrate a misunderstanding between the Jewish Sabbath and the Christian Sabbath. Friend, the Sabbath, the Jewish Sabbath, was not transferred to today. It is not transferred. We're not required to keep the Jewish Sabbath because the Sabbath was a positive law that was given and abrogated at the resurrection of Christ. Now, yes, it took time culturally to be implemented. You can think of, of the, uh, the abrogation of the Sabbath like the changing of a tide. The tide goes up. It takes time for that tide to go inland. But guess what? As soon as it reaches, what? It changes. And that's what it was like the Jewish Sabbath on the seventh day. Now, some people try to borrow Sabbath Jewish cultic laws and apply them to Sunday, but they're inconsistent. They won't do all of them, only some of them. And so really what you do is you have this quasi-pharisaical traditional idea of what Sunday actually looks like by borrowing from the Jewish Sabbath cultic laws without adopting all of them. Look, you need to be either totally consistent or you're just inconsistent. But you cannot argue in Scripture that Saturday Jewish cultic Sabbath is transferred to today. You cannot show it. If you worked as a Jew on the Sabbath, Saturday, you could be stoned. First century church did not transfer cultic 
Jewish Sabbath observances. So, there are some people who take Sunday and they confuse the Sunday with the Jewish Seventh-day Sabbath. But it's okay. We're here to, to redirect that. Another category of people are people who are loose, passive, apathetic, and indifferent to the special, commemorative, redemptive, epoch-changing, glorious day, refusing to commit to a local assembly, financially give and invest in a local body of believers for their good and the glory of God. Sunday for these kinds of people is not actually a special day. They could care less about the church that they attend. As a matter of fact, if it was a job, if their commitment to the local church was the same as a job, they would have been fired a long time ago. They dabble. They're not really all in. And you know what? They don't pray for anybody here. You know why they don't pray for anybody here? Because they're not here. They don't know what to pray for. They're the first ones out. They don't serve anyone because they're consumers. They want other people to serve them. They can come here week after week or maybe once a month or maybe once every other month. Other people can serve them. They don't care. They come and they leave. It doesn't bother them. They come irregularly. They're not thinking about what's going on in the back. And they dabble. And my question to you is this. Is that worship? Is that worship on the Lord's day? Come and you leave. Service starts here at 9.10. We're over at 10.40. Where do, you, where do you have to go? Why do we lose 30, 40% of the congregation? Now look, I get it. Things happen. Kids are sick. You're sick. You have to drive the kids. I get it. I get it. But if you're someone who just comes, and right at 1040 when we're done, when that last song goes, you make a beeline. My question to you is, where are you going? Is, is, it, is it your day or the Lord's day? Whose day is it? What, you... You give God an hour and a half for your week? Today is God's day. It is the Lord's day. It is not your day. It is God's day. And it is a time for you to spend time with God's people, period. And so if you need to leave, if you need to get out of here, then something better take precedence over that. And God knows. But if you're just someone who comes here, and right at the end of the service, you make a beeline out. I can't even get to you. You make a beeline out. And that's worship. It's not, my friend. Because I'll guarantee you this. You're someone who comes, you sit, and you leave right after. You don't know what's going on with brothers and sisters here, and you're certainly not praying for them. Because you're never here. If you're someone like this who just wants to just show up occasionally, I'm glad you're here. And I want you to make Crossway your home. But you need to know as well that you have men and women here on rotation. And they probably won't like that I'm doing this, but I'm going to do it anyway. They come 
and they serve back there so you all can be here. You have men and women who get dressed up in the morning to go serve in the back. They're not here for the singing. They're not here for the sermon. Some of them are not even here for ABF. And they'll never tell you that. And they come and they serve you so you can sit and you can eat and you can participate. Ushers, the the ushers, those, those in the back at the sound booth, they're not with their family, they're serving you. And the reality is this. If everybody who were members and regular attenders here served according to their capacity, there would not be a single need here. Many of you are very faithful in serving and in giving, and you're all in, and some aren't. Question, can you work on the Lord's day? Can you labor on the Lord's day? Can you have employment on the Lord's day? The answer is yes, you can, if you must. And I say it with sadness, because my fear in being honest with you is that I don't want to encourage irreverence, because there are times when you must work on the Lord's day, but if you must work, if you must work, Please schedule it after our gathering Sunday morning. You need to be here. You need to be with the saints because this day is not like any other day, is it? It is God's day. It is God's day. The people who are growing in grace will make it a priority to do what they need to to be here not because of some cultic um, resolution or prohibition but because you want to be here you want to be here the people who want to be here will be here because you want to be here they'll talk to their boss they'll talk to their employer they'll explain to them the importance of the day now after this morning and guess what you get to evangelize your boss Ask him if he knows the Lord. Ask him why he's not here. And then you invite him to come. Because you're going to be here. The people who get it and who are growing will prioritize to be here regularly. And look, you can watch the sermon later on. And you can fellowship with brothers and sisters occasionally. But leftovers are fine. But the meal that's fresh is usually always better. Another type of people who gather in the Lord's day... They just do what they've always done. They just come. They just show up. But they don't actually know why. But now you do. And the fourth kind, they look forward to Sunday gathering to celebrate, participate, and worship with God's people, which includes the reading of God's word, the preaching of God's word, and the singing of God's word. I can't wait for Sunday. I can't wait to see you. I don't know if you can wait to see me. That doesn't matter. I can't wait to see you. And, 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 and it's the Lord's Day, isn't it? Amen. But beyond gathering on Sunday, we're not given any other pro- prohibitions or commands. Some gather for an hour and a half, and some gather all day. Now, I'm not going to take the time for time's sake to unpack 
what the what churches, what congregations have done within the last 2,000 years or so regarding the Sabbath. But I will say this. The underlying principle is that some of the errors is that they wrongly tried to excavate the seventh-day cultic Sabbath prohibitions, Jewish Sabbath, and they tried to move it and plant it down for the Lord's Day. You cannot do that. You can't do that. Why? Because it is the seventh day, not the first day. You don't have that kind of spiritual equipment, and Scripture does not allow it. Sunday is not Saturday, and the seventh day is not the first day. There is a new creation, and there is the old creation. Sunday is a unique and memorable day that should, should require something special, shouldn't it? But Scripture does not lay out any specific commands in terms of the time gathered, the length of time, or in terms of the order of service. God has left that flexible to, to, um, to, to adapt to whatever, whatever culture it is at whatever time. But bottom line is this. The Jewish Sabbath looks back to Israel's deliverance from slavery in Egypt, but the Christian Sabbath, Sunday morning, the Lord's Day, looks back at the resurrection of Christ, inaugurating a new era a new epoch of deliverance, not from Egypt, but of sin. That is why we gather on the Lord's Day on Sunday. Let me pray for us. Father, we're thankful that your word is crystal clear about the difference between Sabbath, Jewish Sabbath, seventh day rest, and this first day. Thankful for the clarity. And trust that, um, trust that you will... You will give your people a longing and a desire to be with your people, to make it a priority to be here, to be plugged in, to contribute, to pray, to serve one another. And Lord, we know that um, when the urgings and the pleadings fall short, that your spirit just has to do the work. He has to convict. He has to exhort. And, um, and so when, when we're without words, we just trust that you'll continue to do what you promised to do, which is build your church. And that's what you're doing, and that's what you will continue to do. So, towards you, you reserve all the honor and glory and thanksgiving in Jesus' name. Amen.